Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cup. My name is Micah Woods. I'm here with John Wall, a repeat guest on the show. John is the golf course superintendent at the world-renowned Shanqin Bay Golf Club in the southern part of China on Hainan Island. Welcome to the show again, John. Hey, Micah. Great to be back. Looking forward to talking uh, various topics, Turf. Yeah, I, you know, we're... We're in a similar part of the world. I guess uh, southern China is kind of Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm in Bangkok now. That's Southeast Asia. Uh, similar types of grasses. And uh, it's it's always a, a pleasure to talk with you because I know we get to see a lot of the same uh, grasses and some of the same management challenges, some of the same playability challenges. You know, you worked in Hong Kong before. You worked in northern vietnam you worked in central vietnam uh so you know you're familiar with a lot of the grasses that i study every day and you're familiar with some of the weather challenges and stuff so it's always fun to talk to you especially and to hear your insight on these kind of matters yeah insight might be quite generous but uh yeah I've, i've been over here 12 years now and kind of worked within that triangle of vietnam hong kong and now now south china where yeah the grasses are very similar the wet seasons can be equally punishing in each place but uh yeah i, I there's there's a lot of interesting shared similarities between here and, and bangkok and the rest of southeast asia mm-hmm. and there's there certainly are and i am particularly interested in talking about I guess the inputs that are involved in turf grass management and the word sustainability and some of the, not just in Asia, but you know, some of the golf development or redevelopment, certainly in, in Southeast Asia, in this part of the world where there's been a lot of new courses built over the past decade, uh, 15 years. And then, uh, yeah, just, I mean, specifically, specifically, uh, I have read some of your tweets, uh, or what are they now? Posts on, on X, whatever, whatever it's called now. Uh, and you seem to have a very clear insight onto stuff that just seems like bullshit. Like, like there might be a course that's putting a lot of pesticides but then they put one little beehive and all of a sudden it's it's sustainable and that's something that should be celebrated. And we'll read that in a press release. And perhaps I look at that and read it and say, that's nonsense, you know, that that, that really is something sustainable that should be celebrated. But you seem to be braver than I am sometimes in, in calling out some of that nonsense and saying, you know, do we really want to say that uh, a, a golf tournament that's sponsored by a plastics manufacturer and chemical company is is so sustainable? Or uh, are some of these things, you, you know, the word greenwashing comes up of making golf seem better than it is and and just ignoring some of the things that... Uh, that do get done on golf courses and instead saying, Oh, we're using recycled bunker rate candles. So now all of a sudden we are an amazing property. And, 
and so so that's the general thing I wanted to talk about is this whole sustainability thing and kind of figure out where you're coming from because I've read your tweets and and I just are are you anti sustainability or are you pro sustainability <laughs> what do you think about that Sorry Mike I lost you there but I I think I can still kind of answer the question I look I certainly encourage any any form of environmental stewardship if you're installing beehives that's fantastic um the issue i sometimes take is that i think yeah the, the bar for being a a champion of environmentalism ecology sustainability can be set very low so if you put a pile of logs on the edge of a woodland somehow that you know that you're saving the planet uh where there's no seemingly very little stringency in checking what else you're doing um you know you could be throwing your used batteries into the sea you can be burning your old car tires but if you you know do a bit of window dressing it it appears that uh you can certainly make yourself look very good you can pad your cv i it just comes across as a bit disingenuous all right, we had some technical difficulties, but I am back. Uh, thank you for your patience, John. And uh, I heard your answer, so thank you. That that is very well explained. Um, I I I guess in addition to reading your tweets uh, and some of your feedback and kind of um, having a similar idea about sustainability, I've been reflecting on an article that I was a co-author on in and it was published in 2013 and I've recently put that up on the ATC blog and I'm going to bring that up on my screen you won't be able to see it but I think you're familiar with the article it's the article called documenting your progress towards sustainability and I'm going to put a direct link to this in the show notes and I, I think this is a, a really nice way to consider sustainability because it's saying you should, there's some things you, you can quantify. You can quantify what you're doing uh, in the big picture, uh, kind of like a land management year after year kind of uh, measurement. And I know you've looked at that article recently, and I just wondered what your take is on that. If I, I've always liked this approach uh and and you're somebody who's actually managing golf courses and, and i i wanted to hear your take about about this um yeah sure i think i mean the most sustainable kind of use of a land is is for it to be untouched and then anything on top of that is almost in some sense that detrimental to its sustainability so the more and more we do whether it's putting a golf course on it putting more car paths buildings on it you stray further and further away from it being sustainable in perpetuity so basically i the way i see it the less we do the better and so i would i'd say there are about well seven things that i think everyone should do or attempt to do less of without damaging the end product so reducing your fertilizer use chemical use fuel sand um your water use so that that's material 
um, consumption, reducing that. Um, and as the, the first point in your article, I think, is reducing the turf acreage, which in turn, of course, reduces those previous five. Uh, and then the final one of this of my seven, I guess, um, to which is more applicable here, especially when you are importing a lot of goods, is your shipping miles. Um, if you're buying American-made fertilizer in China and that fertilizer gets produced, put on a boat, shipped around the world, um, and then applied, it, you know, the, I guess the CO2 emissions on that must be astronomical. So wherever I can, I, you know, that's something I, I don't like to do. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that's the most concise, perhaps not the most eloquent way of, of saying, just reduce what you do without impacting your, your product. Right. So, so that's where we would measure the playability or rate the, if we need to consider the visual appearance of the property uh, and the playing conditions of the property, we need to keep track of of what those are and make sure that we're achieving that desired result. And then as we achieve that desired result, the idea would be to minimize the fertilizer required to do that, minimize the fuel required to do that, minimize the sand required to do that, minimize the water required to do that, minimize our carbon cost from shipping uh, and, and the stuff that's coming from halfway around the world um, minimize our electrical cost uh, or our electrical usage as well. Um, let let me let me see. Tell me your seven again: fertilizer, water, pesticide, sand. What else? Uh, fuel and total turf acreage, and okay. then shipping. Okay. This is a you know back of a cigarette packet formulation. I, I don't have some sustainability manifesto that I am sitting on ready to launch on this podcast for the first time. It, it, it's to me, th these are just the obvious, the obvious things to, to note. They're not necessarily the most sexy things. They're not the stuff you can put on an Instagram post and people will, you know, clap at, but uh, it's the stuff that makes the biggest difference. Well, good. I, I'm, I agree with you, and I um, I think a lot of this was was explained in this short four page article that was published in 2013. Um, that Wendy Galerner and Larry Stoll took the lead on writing it, and I was glad to be asked to be a co author. Uh, but you know they did most of the heavy lifting on this, and in the blog post. Uh, there's a direct link to read the article and I just reread it again and I made some notes. The blog post is some notes that I, that I made after rereading the article for the first time in a few years. And I'm struck by how relevant and useful the advice is today. So I'm just going to read a couple quotes from the article. Um, and then, then we'll stop talking about it and, and just talk about the topic more generally. But I think, uh, there's the question of the definition and, and the article says, how can you meet a goal of sustainability? The article asks when its meaning has become so vague and diluted that a recent Google search on defined sustainable yielded more than 28 million entries. 
that was back in 2013. <laughs> I just, this morning, John, I just ran the same search and the search for define sustainable when I run it on Google in Bangkok this morning returned not 28 million entries, but 1,640,000,000. So uh, over the past 10 years, um, I think the meaning has become very vague and diluted. It, it, that, that situation hasn't improved. And the key thing, really the key thing from the article, I highlighted this. I, I, I will read this quote. By monitoring parameters that have hard and fast numbers attached to them, you will have a clear and easy way to communicate your progress as a means of motivating your employees, highlighting it in your job review, and publicizing it in your clubhouse, your newsletter, or your website. And then the article goes through to uh, provide advice on how to cut through the hype and greenwashing and vague definitions moving away from a mushy, confusing, and frustratingly unobtainable goal, and it suggests what to measure. And what it suggests to measure uh, are basically the same things that uh, you you mentioned in your seven-point list, um, with the exception of... Well, it, it recommended uh, finding things. Hopefully, you could find things at your facility that would be a useful sustainability quantifiable measurement that's relevant for your facility. And, you know, that, that could be number of uh, bird species uh, counted on the property every year, or it could be the uh, number of uh, recycled, uh, uh, I don't know, bird boxes that you've put up every year. Uh, it could be related to honeybees. It could be related to shipping material across the world um, or, or locally sourced food served in the clubhouse or whatever. But the main thing from a turf grass management perspective is simply to uh, have the suitable playing conditions with a minimum amount of inputs. And I think that that often gets ignored in our happy little golf industry as we have so... Um, I don't know. I just get so much messaging about use this product, use this machine, more sand is better. And every, mm. and there's, there's less talk about these simple things that we can do that, that are actually sustainable. And I think long term, and, and you know, in China, there's been a lot of golf courses uh, were closed. I, I don't know how many courses there are in China right now, but I think it's a few hundred less than there were um, a few years very, ago. Very, very ballpark figures. It was in the 600s, and I believe it's now in the 300s. And so, you know, in, within the last couple of months, I've heard of a couple of courses closing. So uh, it's 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 not cut and dry. It's uh, ongoing. Wow. So, so it's it's about 50 percent of the number of properties that there was at the peak, right? Uh, something like that. Uh, don't quote me on it, but yeah, very, okay. very ballpark figure there. All right. So I appreciate you sharing that. So there are issues uh, that that's perhaps a, an extreme example. But if we think of the world in the future, uh, there's a lot of people that don't play golf and they can think of better land use than golf. So for some parts of the world, golf is popular and people that are involved in the industry, I think they fail to see what the general public 
uh, perceives golf as. And I think it's quite useful to, to just as a professional, as a golf course superintendent, as a greenkeeper, I think it makes sense uh, as a professional to try to manage the property in the most sustainable way um, and just be honest about what we're doing and try to do better every year. And that particular article that I've just discussed and your seven point list that you also discussed um, seems to me a very reasonable way to go about doing this. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I would agree. I would just to butt in, sorry. I think it takes a bit of time to, to feel comfortable enough in, in what we do to implement some of these changes. I mean, you've said yourself, you know, you used to advocate for a lot of aeration, a lot of top dressing. I've been a heavy top dresser for, you know, most of my career up to this point. It's only in the last couple of years where I felt more comfortable producing that input and realizing, oh, I don't need to go every week. We, we don't need to be throwing sand all the time. And, you know, you can get into this cycle of, you know, more sand, more verticutting, more fertilizer, more aeration, and, and you you increase the work and where the reality is if you, you know, carefully reduce and you see, see the effect. And then after a while you realize that, yeah, you don't need to be running at a hundred miles an hour the whole time consuming this, that, and everything. Yes. And that's where I think this quantification, um, or, you know, recording how much water did we use this year? What what was our maintained our intensively maintained turf grass area this year? How much diesel did we use this year? How much did it cost? How much gasoline did we use? How much did it cost? These are are things that people are generally going to be able to keep track of. Like any professional turf manager is going to know how much sand they purchased and applied, how much fertilizer was purchased and applied, uh, and how much. Um, you know, pesticides were purchased and applied, right? Uh, mm. And just keeping track of that and then seeing if it can be done more efficiently over time, e either with lower cost or lower amounts or lower toxicity of product selection or less sand or uh, finding a sand source that has less uh, carbon cost associated with the shipping of that sand. All of these things can be used to to manage a property in a more sustainable way and i think these things are are meaningful and i noticed that you seem to catch that and you call out some of the uh, hypocrisy or nonsense sometimes where i've i've been a little bit more hesitant to uh to tell people that they're doing it wrong when i was younger i did uh you know, I thought one of the best things to do is if somebody posted something that wasn't necessary would be just to tell them that. Um, and now I kind of just like let stuff slide that I don't agree with. But I, I admire you for for being so honest about this and trying to to spur conversation about it. And I've got some upcoming seminars in France where people ask me to talk specifically about uh, sustainability. I have some upcoming seminars in Helsinki, where people ask me to talk about sustainability and, and producing good conditions with fewer inputs, because in the EU, there are uh, restrictions on the amount of products that can be used and 
there have been has been some extreme weather and droughts and water restrictions and so on and turf grass managers are it's being mandated it's being legislated there that they have to uh, manage in a certain way or manage without using certain resources so their question is what can we learn from you about how we might be able to do this and um I don't know if the whole world's going to be like that eventually. I suppose uh, 200 years from now or something, it, you know, there, there will be more legislation like that all over the world. Um, but I think it just makes sense to get out in front of this and just make sure that one is managing in the best possible way. So, and yeah, I, I, I was quite fond of the, Golf Environment Organization uh, geo-certified program because they required three years of records on all of these things and an assessment of how much of your material was was purchased locally and how much was coming from a long ways away. And that information used to be public on the website. I searched the website this morning and the current iteration of the sustainable golf website, I, I just can't find the type of information that I used to find. Um, you know, back in the 2016 era, 2017 era, it seems like the website, and in fact, I checked on the uh, Wayback Machine, the wet internet archive, and I can go find how many liters of water were used in 2013, 2014, 2015, at geo certified courses i can't find that anymore and and i feel like that's really a step backwards from what i think the the sustainability movement should be like in the industry sustainability and certification programs are doing everything right i'm sure there are so many fantastic clubs out there um but yeah, it just seems this some of the stringency is is not quite there, um, and I kind of feel like it, it needs to be. And uh, yeah, it's, it, look, maybe the barrier of entry is low in the beginning, and then as the popularity grows, then the barrier becomes higher to to achieve you know a certified status for whatever NGO wishes to do this. But uh, yeah, from from my perspective at the moment. Uh, yeah, like you say, there's not so much evidence either to, well, that's visible for, for you and me if we're looking for it. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, but uh, it, it could be better. Yeah, it, it, it could be better. I, I, I used to hate the word sustainability. I, I went to graduate school I was in graduate school from 2001 to 2006 and at graduate school in the United States, it's, uh, you know, a lot of progressive people, you know, people very progressive politically and, uh, uh, environmentally and sustainability is kind of a popular word. And I always felt it was vague and, and, uh, a mushy type of word that didn't have so much meaning. And so I always tried to avoid using it. And then Steve Isaac from the RNA, 
uh, who, who's recently retired, uh, he shared with me a definition 15 years ago or so that the RNA had, maybe, maybe even more than 15 years ago now. Uh, and that, that definition it was something like this. Uh, sustainability for golf was optimizing the playing quality of the golf course in harmony with the conservation of its natural environment under invite let's see under economically sound and socially responsible management and i thought that was fine because it now it puts a specific definition to it and the playing quality is something that we can measure and the conservation of its natural environment is something that we can measure with some of these inputs and also the socially responsible management is also something that we can uh, kind of measure are we how many people are we employing are we uh, are we using 10 million liters of water per year or 1 billion liters of water per year these types of things can be quantified and so so I, I liked that, and I didn't really like the Audubon Society of New York, uh, which runs the Audubon Certification Program for Golf Courses, uh, which is kind of popular in the U.S., but that, that's very mushy and vague, and, and uh, it's sort of like, okay, we have some birds on our golf course, so, so that's nice. I mean, I mean, it's more complicated than that. There's more to it than that. Um, but what I really liked about the the geo program and the geo certified program was we had to quantify our water use, our energy use, our fuel use, our pesticide use, our fertilizer use. And not only did that have to be quantified and reported and and one would have to get you know to get certified, you have to provide that and it had to be verified by an independent verifier. And then that independent verifier has to sign their name to it. So I wasn't going to sign my name to something that I didn't believe that the information was factually correct. Not only that, to get that certification, um, but that information would then be public on the website. And uh, so a summary of the key points of that would be on the website. So your water use would, would go there. Uh, it's on the website. Anybody could see it, whether they're in the golf industry or whether they're anti-golf or whatever, they could see it. And as far as I can tell, that's all less available now. And I think... Do you think, sorry, do you think perhaps that maybe putting so much information out there, whilst good in some cases, could also be used against golf in others? So to give you an example, let's say a golf course in Scotland, all fescue, no pesticide use whatsoever. They've got track record, five years, no pesticide, two thumbs up, great, amazing. A golf course in Singapore, for example, is never ever, under the best environmental and uh, agronomy stewardship, is never gonna be able to achieve the same thing. And so if, if they, they're to be certified and they're putting up their chemical records on, you know, for, for public view, uh, that could very easily be used in a, in a negative sense against that specific club or against golf in general. So I will uh, perhaps defend the editorial changes that may have gone, may or may not have gone on on the GEO website. Um, maybe that's a, 
possible reason. That 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 may be a possible reason, and I suppose if uh, you know if if venues in Dubai are going to be geo certified, and 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 you know even some of the high input courses in South China or or in Singapore or wherever, uh, they because of the year round growing season and because of the climate they they naturally have higher inputs and i've had this this discussion with jonathan smith and with other people involved with geo and what i always took from what they told me they were always telling me let's get as many courses as possible into the program and and even if it doesn't look so good right now in tor- in terms of how much water they're using or how much pesticide they're using, the idea is to get them into the program and to to let them keep track of how much they're using and and show improvement over time. And I so that was that, always that's, the, that's what I meant about referring to the low bar of entry. That's that's kind of what I that's what I was getting at. And then you can. Well, in in his view, perhaps they maintain that uh, ambition to be, to be better and better each year. My fear would be that you get the certification, and then from then on you can kind of coast because you've you've achieved it, and it's on to the next thing where you know you're doing a, a an empowerment of staff award with a different organisation. Um, so that would be my perhaps the concern that, there. Yes, and and that's where I thought by by keeping all of that information public, anybody who cares can check if they're doing better or not. Um, But I suppose there's enough potential clubs getting verified that don't want that information public, that perhaps that's why that information no longer seems to be available. Although I understand that the R&A, they also now have a big sustainability division and now they, you know, I think they're supporting some of this. They certainly in the past were supporting and promoting some of this certification. And and I don't really see them doing much in this area either. And everything seems to me pretty, I, I mean, certainly they've got their, their Golf Course 2030 program, which d- seems to be focused on Europe and, and maybe in Australia and New Zealand uh, for now, right? It, it's not quite quite going into so many uh asian countries except maybe singapore maybe a little bit in japan but uh, uh well i mean chris gray works with the rna under that sustainability banner in asia uh, and i know i know he gets around and look i generally have an extremely high opinion of the rna and what they do i i kind of lean towards agreeing with them on most matters um so yeah i i do believe they're trying you know their best in in this area um, yeah, perhaps public public facing side of things is um, perhaps not as visible as they might want or as we might want. Let's say. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's about all I'm prepared to say on a podcast uh, about uh, the current state of things because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I I certainly know public facing and. And what we see on like a Facebook post or a press release about what people are calling sustainable, um, to me, uh, 
it's not it certainly is not really much progress from where we were a decade ago and and i think that's a pity and i would encourage individual golf course managers or golf course ownership groups or development groups to try to uh be more sustainable and i reference the article that was published in 2013 called documenting your progress towards sustainability as a nice framework to use so that's uh i guess that's kind of what i want to say and and it's something that i wanted to bring up in advance of some uh seminars that i'm going to be giving over the autumn and winter in the northern hemisphere uh, where i have to reconsider this topic again and then i'm like wow where where are we now in 2023 uh compared with where i i wish we were so yeah micah can i ask you one i i would like it to be a question it may be more of a statement about 20 years ago when paspalum was kind of gaining popularity and uh there there is a book called paspalum the environmental turf grass where you know it it was touted that paspalum lower inputs of nitrogen so on and so forth um i think now that we have 20 years of experience we you could suggest that paspalum isn't quite as environmental as uh, people may have originally hoped and whether it you could argue whether this is the cycle beginning again now with uh, zoysia so zoysia is the hot grass at the moment it's you know being touted as much fewer inputs much less work and i would tend to agree with that um so let's say zoysia is more environmentally sustainable in certain climates um however from a business sustainability perspective let's say we install we rip out our past palum greens we re- we install zoysia greens now our inputs are going to be much less the amount of work is going to be much less but if you're in a competitive golf market chances are your zoysia greens are going to be less smooth not as fast as golf courses down the road that have ultra dwarfs or past palums let's say and in a highly competitive golf market that probably will be detrimental to your business whether it's minimal or whether it's five percent i couldn't say this is a pure hypothetical um i guess so my question at all the end of that is where do you fall in the kind of the support of renovating with the latest grass is that really a sustainable thing to do i mean of course it's case by case um Uh. I mean, how how much of an environmental benefit can you achieve from changing the grass? Bearing Uh, in mind that greens are generally about 3% of the total acreage of a golf course. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And uh, there's many aspects to it. Most of of them I will have addressed at some point on the ATC website where I've been writing about uh, playability and grass selection for many years. So there's hundreds of posts and, you know, probably 50 about zoysia and 50 about paspalum and so on. Um, and, and now zoysia, at least in this part of the world, it becomes popular, but I even see zoysia. Um, there's talk about importing zoysia into Japan, which is, 
Yeah, I often think like in Southeast Asia also, like importing zoysia is kind of like bringing, you know, a bucket of sand to the beach because you already have so many good zoysias here. And, you know, the the ones that are coming from the U.S. in some cases are are obviously worse quality than the grass that's already here in terms of leaf texture, color, drought tolerance, seed head production, um, uh, mowing requirement, and so on. And so you just wonder, like, why why are people choosing this particular grass? Now, I see the same thing happening in Japan where people are testing some some varieties from from outside of Japan. And, and I look at it saying, what are you gaining from that? So that kind of thing... You know, I, I, I question, um, but, uh, and you see like, okay, zoysia gets used in Australia now. And I wonder whether that's really the right choice in Australia. And, you know, there's courses in North Carolina in the U S putting in, in zoysia greens. And it's just like, what are you trying to do in North Carolina or in Tennessee with zoysia greens? It's like, uh, it's cool enough there that you could pretty easily have bank grass and if you look at the pesticide requirement in in those types of climates so i'm not talking about southeast asia now where where you could expect significantly reduced pesticide on zoysia but uh if you start planting zoysia in places that have a, a winter of four months five months in duration you now have to prevent large patch you have to prevent spring dead spot you have to do a lot of fungicide uh, you know, preventative fungicides to keep the disease scars from making it one of the ugliest uh, golfing surfaces that you've ever seen. So I, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of trendiness with, with zoysia. And I think in Southeast Asia, I'm more concerned about uh, water use because people always, uh, they tend to sand cap golf courses. They tend to sand cap fairways with a pretty coarse sand that doesn't hold very much water and then you throw a grass on it, zoysia, that has less uh, drought tolerance and more, a higher water requirement than Bermuda grass does. So, so now you all of a sudden have more water requirement and you also have more, uh, more energy requirement to pump that water. And to, now to go to the specific uh, issue of putting quality and whether that is more sustainable. I think uh, the cases where I really like zoysia greens, and I just think it makes sense to have it for reduced inputs and improved playability, um, are places like in Manila on an old golf course with big trees around the greens. Uh, pretty much anywhere in Southeast Asia where, where you have big trees around the greens, lots of shade around the greens, you want to have low-cut turf, uh, Bermuda grass is not going to perform very well at all. Seashore pasbalum yeah. will perform better than Bermuda grass will. But zoysia... But not as good as zoysia. But not as good as zoysia. So, so in those, those sorry, kind of you, places, you, it's great. Are you saying that kind of zoysia now is imitating pasbalum where when it first came out, it was over-prescribed? So 20 years ago, especially around Southeast Asia, way too much pasbalum golf courses were put down and now nowadays the only time you would really use paspalum is when your water quality demands it and do you see zoysia heading in the same direction where zoysia greens will continue to be used but 
in the next few years we'll see it only being used really in areas where the light is low enough to demand it to demand the zoysia and the you know the bermuda grass can't cope uh, i hope so uh, certainly it's it's is generally that way in thailand when when you look at the countries that have a a let's say a bigger golf market and a uh, maybe more experience with golf and and so thailand has so many courses with zoysia greens all the military courses for the most part have zoysia greens um and and a lot of the older courses have zoysia greens royal bangkok sports club has zoysia greens there's people are familiar with zoysia greens here these aren't new zoysias they've they've been zoysia for 30 years 40 years 50 years so people are familiar with the type of putting surface that you get on zoysia and in general um the the owners would prefer to have bermuda grass and and so it's a harder sell in thailand but i see in some of the new projects in vietnam and it seems like there's less of a a golf golfing history in that country and some of the owners are more likely to say sure let's use zoysia and and i don't know why arch yeah i think architects should go see more of the existing golf courses instead of just uh going to conferences and i mean the the whole disaster with paspalum <laughs> is yeah it's repeating itself and and i'm i mean it's the same people involved uh you know, for the most part, and it, because you get you get the owners, you got the grass supplier, you have the architect, uh, you have the grow-in superintendents, and it's the same group of people that just go around and and do this without looking at the long term. How many resources are going to be used to produce good playability over a ten-year, twenty-year, thirty-year lifespan of the property? And Paspalum wasn't a good choice twenty years ago, and. I think zoysia is a better choice in Southeast Asia. I don't think, it, but it gets pushed in so many places to, to like central Portugal or, or even north of Lisbon, though not, not north of Lisbon, uh, a little bit south of Lisbon. Um, and, you know, it, I, I just don't know that, that zoysia needs to get, get used in Northern California and in Sydney and in Portugal and in places where the climate is borderline. And in Southeast Asia, to just use zoysia as often as it is, and, and to bring in zoysia from, uh, from other parts of the world when you have perfectly good varieties locally that can be used. Um, and the same thing in Japan, I'm just not quite, quite sure that that's the most sustainable way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think you've been very pro zoysia for a very long time. Um, but you're also willing to be critical of it where you see people being a bit overly evangelical about how good zoysia can be. It's a fantastic grass in the right circumstance, in the right climate environment, just, just like any other grass is. Um, is it underused perhaps in the right environment? Yes. Is it also now being overused in what you could suggest is the wrong environment? Also, yes. Yeah. And 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 i think the only thing that that i can do is just try to keep learning myself and keep trying to provide the best information that i can because that's what i do with in my work with atc and my work with pace turf is just trying to be providing good turf grass information 
And so I, I tried to learn and, and share that information. And, uh, and then I put it on the record so we can come back and check if I was right or wrong in the future. So, uh, you know, you can go back and read what I was saying about Paspalum 15 years ago. And, you know, I've written articles about sand capping saying that sand capping is overdone too, because I think that, uh, not only is a huge money cost and a huge, uh, carbon cost to put 15 or 20 centimeters of sand, sometimes more, uh, across a, an entire golf property. But now you, now you have to add more water and you have to add more, uh, fertilizer in order to keep grass alive. And so that, that is to me, like not, not the really sustainable way to do it. And I would argue that when you have to put more fertilizer and more water, you, you end up having an artificially high growth rate. Then you have to do more organic matter management to, uh, to keep the surface playable. So you put a huge, uh, ongoing cost requirement and work requirement onto the golf course superintendent and the golf course owner. I've got rain on the brain at the moment because we've had about 10 days of consecutive rain, but the alternative to not sand capping a fairway in Southeast Asia is what? Because areas that aren't sand capped under wet weather and heavy play, you know, the, the result is, is not there. So is from again, going back to business sustainability, are people going to want to play a golf course that, that looks like a, a speedway track? Um, because it just can't handle traffic and play when, when the weather is wet. Well, um, I, I'm all for investing in drain pipes that go to move water away. And I'm all for, uh, sand top dressing to build up a layer of coarser material at the surface that I think that once you have about five centimeters of material combined with, uh, enough drains to move the water away you you now have a playable surface and i i know this is such a long topic and we can argue back and forth i think a one-time uh purchase of x hundred thousand cubic meters of sand is easier for a lot of developers than the operator to continually buy you know, hundreds of tons or thousands of tons of, of sand each year and maintain a program where superintendents change. Some will say it's necessary, some will say it's not. I think it's probably safer for a developer to do it in the front end rather than under operation. Yeah, it it may be. And, and a lot of the people that are involved in golf course construction and, and grow in and and maintenance will just say, look, we're doing it right. We're, we're doing something that they've got the money. Now we're just going to build it for them the best way possible. And, and, and that's really the best way to do it because we can't rely on them to fix it in the future. And they're just going to blame us if they don't put the sand and it doesn't, you know, they, it could be a disaster. So I can understand business wise why that happens, but I often play 20 year old sand capped golf courses in Bangkok and I hit a low draw 210 yards uh, into the center of the fairway 
and it hasn't rained for two months and I get mud on the ball and then I do that on the next hole and I do that on the next hole uh, and and I get a little bit frustrated at the, you know, sometimes you'll have a ball plug in the fairway from a low draw on a sand capped golf course. And so I feel like, okay, here's a lot of money that was spent that may have worked good for the first five years of operation or something. But if you don't do this ongoing maintenance on a sand cap fairway, it soon gets to be worse than if you didn't sand cap altogether. And, and I'm just more inclined to say, let's, let's just maintain it. Right. But yeah, there's no really clear answer on that one. Um, but, but I'm on the side. Yeah, of I, like, I guess it all depends on, on who's in charge. I mean, look, I going back to the earlier point about Zoysi greens being slow in the right hands. I fully believe they can be as good as, as an ultra dwarf green, but chances are, you know, there, there are only so many world-class superintendents in the world and there are more golf courses in existence than world-class superintendents. And so it's inevitable that perhaps a less skilled or a less educated or someone without the budget is going to end up in with Zoysia, in charge of Zoysia Greens and they won't be able to produce the perhaps the promised uh, performance characteristics. And that, that's when they fall behind, you know, the other grasses, which are perhaps easier to get speed out of. Yeah, and and easier to recover from if if something goes wrong because um, you know with zoysia one of the benefits one of the touted benefits is its slow growth which is wonderful so long as the surface is perfect until you burn the hell out of them yeah but if you've got a blemish on it uh, and it and it's growing slow uh, you're going to struggle to recover now in Southeast Asia you've got the benefit of tropical weather so it actually can recover what I worry about is when so as it gets pushed into the places where it's cooler, now you have such a short growing season that um, eventually it'll get taken over by other other grasses, um, which we can see like around Barcelona or something where Zeon's been tried. And, you know, you don't even have to take it away. It just takes itself away in, in that type of climate over time. And it gets overtaken by weeds and other grasses um, just because it's not hot enough there in in the summer and it's too cold in the winter um and so of course could you for could you make it work could you force that grass into that location and and that's one of those interesting places in the world where you you can find uh stenotaphrum secundatum cynodon dactylin zoysia metrella zoysia japonica uh kaikuyu grass uh and and a lot of cool season grasses too you can find all these grasses growing right around barcelona um but is is the slowest growing grass the one that you really want to have when you're when you're having a professionally managed sporting surface? Maybe not. Um, so so we see in Southeast Asia also, you know, now now Zoysia gets starts getting used on on a lot more football pitches on on stadiums. As you see the the problems and successes that happen with that, and and I think what we see in press releases. And, and marketing tends to be more of the successes, but there also are some failures and it's tough. You know, if you think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just think it's, it's tough to use Zoysia on a, uh, a soccer pitch. And I think there's a reason why that hasn't been so common around the world, but now that becomes trendy now in Southeast Asia also. So look, I'm sure there are successes. I mean, I wouldn't um, 
I don't know enough about stadium turf to really have a super strong opinion. To There are certain stadiums within Asia that have had a, a laundry list of different grasses and none of them have worked. So I don't want to attribute failure within a stadium environment solely to Zoysia when, you know, certain low light environments, nothing works. So it, it, it's a tricky situation. You have to, I guess people have to keep trying the latest and greatest if it's potentially better than everything else that's completely fallen flat on its face beforehand. Yeah. I, I, I think there's uh yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to criticize uh, sports field management in Southeast Asia too much, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, Bermuda doesn't work. Paspalum doesn't work. So you might as well try Zoysia. But I, I, I think maybe some of those other grasses could work with a little bit uh, different maintenance, but yeah, that, that depends. Uh, certainly the new stadium uh, name Zoysia is going to be a lot better than Xeon. Uh, I, I, I know that Xeon is used on some sports fields and I just don't think that's the best type for sports fields, but the stadium type, uh, I've seen that. And, and that I think is going to be a nice improvement over Xeon. So that, that would hope be so. I mean, the, the name implies success in that environment. So uh, it, you, it you certainly is a, is a good name. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we have talked about all kinds of things, mostly, uh, trying to kind of wrap our heads around the sustainability topic and, I just I wanted to talk about it with you because I I I think there's some some superintendents don't pay as much attention to it as you do, and I knew you would be able to give me some some feedback about this and and some good insight. So I appreciate that, John. Thank you very much. Thanks. I hope it wasn't too mixed up as it came out my mouth, but uh, yeah, well, I think it was uh, it was enjoyable to talk about it. I, well, I think it, it certainly sounds more clear to me what I heard from you than what was coming out of my mouth. Uh, so, so I can't imagine what it's going to be like for those listening to this uh, to try to make sense of what we've we've just talked about. But I, if I could leave everybody with this, I would just say if you're a golf course manager, a turf grass manager, director of agronomy, superintendent, head greenkeeper, whatever, I would encourage you to have a look at that article that there's a link to on that blog post about documenting your progress towards sustainability and look at quantifying these things that you come up with the same type of list. Quantify the work that's done, quantify the inputs that are done, measure the results that are achieved and then try to do better year after year i think that's the best that we can do and it takes away some of the mumbo jumbo and then we get hard numbers and we can say we've reduced our fuel use by 30 percent we've reduced our or or we've improved our playability by by this amount or we've reduced our uh water use by this amount and and i think these numbers are meaningful and and i think that's so much better than saying uh some of this some of the press release type of stuff of like oh now we've added an electric mower to our fleet so so let's make a press release about it that that to me it's ignoring that the pesticide use may have tripled um so by having all of these good numbers we can share meaningful 
uh, information, which I think is is the future. And and whether that that needs to be shared or not, at least you know for yourself how you're doing. And and that to yeah, me I is, think that's one thing important. that perhaps is understated, and that people should want to do this just because they're the steward, you know, the steward of the land, so to speak, and they should want to look after it in a in a way that kind of doesn't hurt the planet. It, I don't think you really need a certificate to um, motivate you to do that. I agree, and and I I want to assume that every turfgrass manager is is thinking in the same way or soon will be thinking in that way and uh and that to me just seems like that's the way we should be going about it so i was reminded of that when i remember that article thank you so much for uh the great insight today john uh, anything else before we say goodbye no no let's leave it there all right let's leave it there Thanks, everybody, for listening and for watching. Thanks, John, for joining. Uh, I will sign off now for ATC from Bangkok. I am Micah Woods. Bye-bye.